I'd like to begin by wishing everybody a very happy Father's Day, especially to the fathers, the stepfathers, the grandfathers, the great-grandfathers, the fathers-in-law that are among us today. We bless you. We say we thank God for you, for your gifts, your love, your sacrifice, your hard work, your leadership in the local church, in the family, in the extended family. We value the role and place of the Father. And I just want to say thank you. We also understand that some of you men uh, desire to be fathers. That's not yet happened in God's providence. And on your behalf, we uh, join with you in asking God for your heart's desire to be fulfilled. Some of you are single and hoping to be married and have children of your own someday. We join with you in asking God for your heart's desire to be fulfilled as well. All of us have a father. Every single one of us in the room has a father, living or perhaps now deceased. And today would be appropriate to say a prayer of thanks to God for your father. Uh, All of their weaknesses notwithstanding, they are one of God's gifts to each of us. If you think about it this way, without them, you wouldn't be here. Now, I know that's not terribly profound, but it is true. And so if you can, pay them a visit, give them a call, send them a note, or maybe even Skype today, and just say, thank you. Let's pray. Lord, You are our Father. You taught us to pray our Father in heaven. We thank you that you are our Father. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of Father. We thank you uh, for all the men uh, that have uh, gone before, Lord, the the men, the fathers, the grandfathers, the great-grandfathers upon whose shoulders we stand. We bless you and thank you for the fathers. Lord, We pray that you would come today and teach us and love us and nurture us as uh, our Father. Put power on your word to our lives where you know each one of us needs it. And not just here in this room, but right next door in Vineyard Kids where they're learning to experience and extend the love of the Father as well. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, among millennials, young adults, and Star Wars movie lovers, there may be no more epic scene than one from The Empire Strikes Back. Luke Skywalker is lightsabering in a battle with Darth Vader in what one movie critic calls potentially the greatest plot reveal in the history of cinema. Many of us who have watched and loved the movie probably remember exactly where we were when we first heard those words, I am your father. Some of you are going to have to watch the movie, obviously. Uh, (laughs) Of course, Luke Skywalker was horrified at his father's revelation. This morning, I'd like for all of you to hear a similar sounding but much more profound revelation, and it comes from the light side. Hopefully it will encourage you, and perhaps it will change your eternal destiny. It comes from God, and he says to us, I am your father. 
Now, almost everyone believes in God. Only 2% of the world's population identify itself as atheist. And so this means that 98 out of 100 people in your three neighborhoods actually believe in God. By far, the greatest majority of people who have ever lived or are currently living believe in God. And God has chosen to reveal himself in different ways. Through general revelation, people come to understand God through nature, beauty, and his creation, the earth, plants, animals, and the human species. Through special revelation, people come to understand God by reading his story known as the Bible. Through Jesus, people come to understand God as Jesus expresses the very nature and character of God, Hebrews 1.3. And through miracles, things like healings and angels and supernatural dreams, physical appearances of Jesus, people hearing God's audible voice and answers to prayer and other means, people come to understand God by his works. But through history, God has largely used the scriptures to communicate to humanity what we need to know about him, uh, what he expects, and what he's done for us. So in the scriptures, in the Bible, God has different names. He's revealed himself in different descriptions. In the Old Testament, he primarily revealed himself by the name Yahweh. It's translated... um, uh, in your Bible, with all capital letters, Lord, in the Old Testament. It really comes from the Hebrew uh, tetragram, Y-H-W-H, from which we uh, get the translation, I am. God reveals himself as, I am who I am, or I am who I will, will be. In the New Testament, God revealed himself as Jesus. In the incarnation, which is what we celebrate at Christmas, the coming of God to the earth in the baby, God took on flesh and blood. And in the words of Eugene Peterson's translation of the Bible called The Message, God moved into the neighborhood. Now, at other places through the New Testament, Jesus is known and referred to with over 100 different names, or titles. But I think it's interesting that when Jesus' followers asked him to teach them how to connect with God, the Father, uh, in, in the way that Jesus had connected uh, with God, he taught them this. Matthew 6, it's recorded for us. Je- uh, Jesus said, pray like this. If you want to connect with God in the way that I've connected then here's how you do it. You pray like this, Matthew 9, 6, 9. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. Blessed be your name is another way we would say it. God is our Father. This is how Jesus instructs us to connect with God. Not as the advocate, the almighty, the Alpha and Omega, the soon-coming King, the Lord of glory, the Creator, the blessed and only Ruler, the beginning and the end, the hope of glory, the bringer of salvation, the King of the ages. 
not any of the other 100 names by which he's revealed in the New Testament. Jesus said, relate to God as Father. He is our Father. Now, many people would say today that they have a a difficult time relating to God as Father because their experience with their Father was so blemished. I understand that perhaps you have suffered immensely at the hands of an absent or alcoholic or workaholic or abusive or otherwise flawed father. Truth is, the only kind of fathers there are are flawed fathers. I'm not minimizing your painful past nor the suffering that you've had to endure or from which you maybe feel like you've never quite recovered. But Jesus' instruction was not limited to those of us who received good parenting and the rest can't connect. Jesus invites us all to connect with God as Father. And I have to believe this means that every one of us is capable today of receiving the blessing and the benefit of connecting with and relating to God as Father. Otherwise, Jesus' invitation could be charged with insincerity. But God is everyone's creator. Every person that's ever lived, that is currently living, was created or made by God. But it's only when we come to God in willing surrender and experience what the Bible calls a new birth from above that God becomes our Father. Through the new birth, we become his children. So think about it with me this way. By our first birth, we experience God as our creator. But it's by our second birth that we experience God as our father. It takes two births to experience God as father. John the Apostle writes it this way in first uh, in, in, in his in epistle, the first chapter, John chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who believed him and accepted him, he, God, gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. So in the new birth, the old you died, and a new you is created. You're forgiven, you are cleansed, you are made new, your past is forgiven, you now become God's child, a son or a daughter, without sin, without blame before God. And then God places his very personal and powerful, continual, indwelling presence in you through the Holy Spirit. And by the Holy Spirit, you can re- you can receive all that God's intended and experience Him as Father. Uh, the Apostle Paul described it this way in the in the book of Romans, the fifth chapter, that He has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with the love of God. Some of you may be familiar with the King James language that. The love of God is shed abroad in our heart by the Holy Spirit. So God's presence in you enables you to experience the love of God the Father. And so our ability 
to respond to Jesus's invitation and connect with God as our father is not limited to our past family experience or our personality or our temperament or our gift mix or our anything is rooted in God's genuine invitation. It carries the intrinsic power in itself, if we choose to respond, that can enable us to connect with God as our Father. Now, we've been studying all year, in in a way, how Jesus came as a radical revolutionary, changing the way people thought about God. He brought God and God's kingdom near to people. Jesus, who was God with skin on, stood in stark contrast to the gods of the Greco-Roman pagan world, gods that were steeped in mythology, mystery. But even the Jews knew God only as distant and indescribable, as shrouded in mystery, and, and very impersonal. For instance, Access to God was seasonal. It happened only at certain times, primarily during the celebration of the feasts of Israel. It was locational. That is, you had to actually go to the tabernacle and then later the temple uh, in Jerusalem. And access to God was thirdly representational. It only happened through the priests. They were the only ones who could approach God. And even then, only through the sacrifice of an animal. And no one got to go into the Holy of Holies where God lived. So access to God was seasonal and locational and and representational. But when Jesus came, Jesus, the radical Jesus, the revolutionary, he changed all of that. And he revealed that access to God was now personal and, and, and close. God was approachable. God was merciful. He spoke of a God who actually numbers the hairs on most of your heads. A God who cares about the sparrows that fall to the ground. A, A God who is directly accessible and attentive when his children actually pray. That was revolutionary to his people. So, to a people who dared not even pronounce the name of God as a good, devout Jew never would, nor write it. Uh, Jesus brought the shocking intimacy of the Aramaic title, Abba. It was a term of family familiarity with which the audience would have been uh, largely accustomed. Uh, The people spoke Aramaic and It was quite possibly the very first word that most of his audience spoke. It was an onomatopoeia, which is a fancy word meaning the word derives its meaning from the sound. And so uh, it would be like the child would say, Dada. In Aramaic, they would say, Abba. And uh, Jesus revealed that nature of relationship with God, the very first word that children would speak. Before Jesus, no one would have ever dared to even think of addressing God with such a personal term of endearment and and closeness. 
Yahweh, the sovereign Lord of the universe, would never have been thought of in the minds of his hearers to be addressed as Abba, Father. But Jesus changed all of that. He revealed God as Abba, Dada, Daddy, Father. He forever changed how God described the nature of his relationship with his children. And he forever changed how his children are to conceive of their relationship with him, God, Yahweh, the sovereign Lord of the universe. And so today, on Father's Day, because of Jesus, I want to ask, how should we adjust our instinctive and former notions about God as our Father? I'm going to suggest three ways. First, God our Father unconditionally loves us. He's not angry, he's not distant, he's not indescribable, nor is he shrouded in mystery. Rather, God comes in search of us, looking for us. He He loves us, and he draws near, and he cares about us, and he actually makes room for us and all of our foibles and faults in in, in the family. But above all, Jesus reveals a God who is love. You see, everywhere Jesus went, he both taught and demonstrated. He It's the show and tell model. He showed God's, the Father's, inexhaustible and never-ending love for all people everywhere. Uh, it mattered not their race, their nationality, their culture, or their religious persuasion, if they had any. It mattered not their place and station in life, uh, their past mistakes, or their present condition. It mattered not their age, their level of education, their social status, their occupation, whether single or married or divorced or widowed or gay or straight or living together. It didn't matter. Just like he loved a Roman centurion, a blind Jewish beggar, a hated tax collector, a hemorrhaging, helpless, hopeless woman, an outcast leper, a, leper, a, a religious a conservative, a, uh, a temple worker, a political activist, a rich young ruler, a psychotic homeless man, or 5,000 hungry learners there on the hillside. God, our Father, loves you in that same way. Now, that's good news, friends. God unconditionally loves you. There is no simpler, no more profound, uh, no more powerful or potentially life-changing news than that, than that revelation. Now, all of us, all of our lives, constantly hear messages otherwise, don't we? We hear messages about how unlovable we are or how ugly or how stupid or how awkward or how skinny or how fat or how shy or how introverted or how extroverted or geeky or uncoordinated or unsuccessful or unwhatever we are. We hear these tapes. They play over and over in our mind and in our memory. Friends diss us. Families hurt us. Teachers judge us. Coaches bench us. 
business partners betray us, spouses depart from us. We begin to believe all these messages that the enemy shouts at us. And because the Bible says that as we think in our hearts, so are we, and we begin to feed on those messages that continually bombard our consciousness, we actually begin to believe that we must not be lovable. Certainly God loves everyone else, but not me. But the simple, profound, powerful, and life-changing truth of the Bible is this. God loves us, period. Right exactly the way you are, entirely the way you've lived life. He loves you. And once you believe in him, once you accept him, there isn't anything you can do to make God love you more. Nothing. You can't earn uh, his approval, nor can you keep it, nor can you cause it to grow. It's, it, it, there isn't anything we can do. You already have God's full blessing. There's, there's no more capacity for it to grow any larger, nor do you have to work any harder to keep it. I love how the Apostle Paul uh, frames the powerful truth with these words in, in the book of Romans, the uh, fifth chapter. You have your Bible or your Bible or app. You may want to flip open to this text. It's it's a, a five verses long. We're going to read Romans six, beginning in verse uh, or five, chapter five, verses six to eleven. Follow along on the screen as well. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we've been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation or judgment. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. That is great news. Now, did you notice that it was when we were utterly helpless and still sinners that God the Father sent his son, Jesus, to die for us? It wasn't because of our intrinsic goodness or our potential or God's observation of, oh my, how many good things they're going to accomplish for me in my kingdom that motivated him to save you. Not at all. It was because he loved us, period. That was it. His all-forgiving, non-performance-based love. He didn't look at you and, and decide to meter out how much love he was going to give you based on how you acted or how you've lived or the choices you've made or the mistakes you've made or anything. It's just... All, 100%, full-on, unconditional, uh, all-forgiving, non-performance-centered love. And the text read that since we've been made right in God's sight by his love, he will save us from any judgment. Condemnation is the word the, the text uses. 
But I think this is powerful. It tells me that no person or demon or the devil himself can judge us, can't condemn us, accuse you, which is precisely what the devil does most of his life or most of our life. He tries to accuse us. You see, since he can't keep us from becoming God's children, after we become God's children, he constantly judges or accuses us. And, and, and in my mind, the, the, the lie goes something like this. Well, if you were really a Christian, you wouldn't think, act, or say what you just did. Therefore, you must not be a real Christian. You must not be a son or a daughter of the living God. Well, this text tells me that I can just tell the devil that my relationship and friendship with God the Father was restored by Jesus. And you are empowered to say the same thing as any uh, Christ follower, any son or daughter uh, of the living God is concerned. We can rejoice in the words of the text that our wonderful new relationship with God uh, was restored because Jesus Christ has now made us his friend. So how should we adjust our instinctive former notions about God our Father? Well, God our Father unconditionally loves us. Secondly. God, our Father, generously provides for us. My parents uh, were hardworking, blue-collar business owners of a family landscaping company. They had six children over 19 years. I got three older sisters and two younger brothers. My father worked really, really hard to build the company uh, and provide for his family, worked long hours every day and evening on the weekends, all the way through the holidays. Neither my mom or dad was able to go to college. And uh, uh, and so in particular, they made all other kinds of sacrifices beyond hard work to guarantee that their six kids would be able to enjoy something that they never were able to. And as kids growing up, while we certainly didn't have everything we wanted, we were well provided for. And it never occurred to uh, to us to doubt that mom and dad would pull through for everything we eventually needed. You see, parents provide for their kids. Said another way, fathers pay the freight. God, our Father, wants to generously provide for you as his child. Now, on one occasion... Jesus delivered what we call the Sermon on the Mount. You could think of it as the talk on the hill. His audience consisted of people just like you and me. All kinds of family constellations represented in that original audience. People who worried about paying their bills, about buying groceries, about sending their kids off to school, having enough resources to care for their aging parents, or or worried about retirement. And Jesus said to them on five specific occasions in this sermon, this Sermon on the Mount, this talk on the hill, not to worry. In in Matthew 6, verse 25, that's why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. Verse 28, and why worry about your clothes? Verse 31, don't worry about these things, saying what will we eat and what will we drink, what will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. And then the exclamation point on the sermon was this powerful promise in verse 33. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously 
and he'll give you everything you need. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. Now, on another occasion, sharing what appeared to be either the same sermon or a teaching very closely similar with probably the same kind of audience, Jesus concluded that message with this promise in Luke's gospel, chapter 12, verse 32. Don't be afraid, little flock. It gives your father great happiness to give you the kingdom. So he encourages his children not to worry. And he promises that if we put God's kingdom at the center of our lives, then he'll provide everything we need. Now, we don't have to follow Jesus for very long before we come to understand that everything we need is not to be confused with everything we want. We learned that lesson early on. As our father, God exercises what all healthy parents try to exercise, and that's the blend of both love and discipline, healthy doses of each. And so this means we don't get everything we want, right? When we want it, in the spirit of love and discipline, we don't receive everything we want. But as God's sons and daughters, we can fully trust him to provide for everything we need when we need it. And I like how the Apostle Paul uh, frames this truth in the book of Romans, the, the eighth chapter, when he said, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. And now we call him Abba, Father. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we're God's children. And since we're his children, we're his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of his glory. And so you've been adopted as God's child. And this means that you can now call him Abba, Father. There's that word again. Paul got it. He wants us to get it. And and he says, you're an heir. And an heir is someone who receives an inheritance. What's your inheritance? Well, I love uh, just a, a few verses later in the same chapter, he tells us what the inheritance is. Since God did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also now give us everything else? Isn't that powerful? Your inheritance from God, your father, includes everything else. Everything. Well, friends, I, I think that pretty much covers just about whatever need you might have for food, clothing, health, shelter, material, physical, emotional, or relational provision we might ever need. Everything else. God, our Father, generously provides what we need. So lastly, how should we adjust our instinctive former notions about God as Father? God, our Father, wisely guides and directs us. No father wants his kid to grow up to be unsuccessful, living a life of drudgery or defeat or boredom or confusion or fear or addiction or failure. No father wants their child to be a bum. No, rather we want our kids to fully experience God's destiny. 
Darth really was expressing the heart of God the Father to his son Luke saying, it's your destiny. Every father wants their children to to fulfill their God-ordained destiny. We want our kids to experience real life, the life that Jesus said he desires for us to have, a life that's punctuated with joy and peace and deep satisfaction, a sense of purpose fullness, meaningful contributions to the communities in which we live, forward progress, or at least knowledge of that progress, that we're actually making a difference by becoming a good neighbor, the kind of neighbor that we've seen God wants us to be. God the Father desires all of us as his children live such a life as well. In the same way that we desire for our kids to be successful, God the Father wants to lead us into a real life as well. And thankfully, he's a communicating God. We aren't left to the fruit of our own choices about what that real life is to be like. Rather, he wants to personally interact with us, lead us, and guide us, and direct us into making the choices that reflect real life. Think about it this way. Every day, we make literally hundreds of decisions, don't we? That range from inconsequential, what will I eat for breakfast, or what outfit should I wear? Well, I mean, that might be really important for some of you, but but largely inconsequential, all the way to, like, life-altering. Should I go to school, go back to college? Should I buy a home? Should I get married? Should I move? Inconsequential to life-altering. And Jesus wants to direct us in that process. I, I love what he said. Jesus said in John's Gospel, the 10th chapter, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. A couple of chapters later, Jesus gave us this promise in John 16. There's so much more I want to tell you, speaking to his original disciples, but you can't bear it now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He'll not speak on his own, but he'll tell you what he's heard. He'll tell you about the future. He'll bring glory to me by telling you whatever he receives from me and all that the Father uh All that belongs to the Father is mine, and that's why I said to you, the Spirit will tell you whatever he receives from me. And so we're not left to our our, ourselves alone uh, to fend for ourselves. Jesus said he's going to give us the Holy Spirit to lead and guide and direct us on the journey. And in that process, we'll be able to bring God the Father glory. And so we, we just have to trust God's direction, even at times if we don't understand or, or or maybe even appreciate it. As fathers, one of the advantages that comes with uh, the head of gray, gray is wisdom. Wisdom that comes from the school of hard knocks and life experiences. And as we gain experiences and wisdom, we try as a coach to pass that on to our children. You can't just, you know, command when they're adults now. You have to coach them. But we understand that the journey into real life takes an entire lifetime and that at any one moment, a setback or a difficult circumstance may actually be a part of God's bigger story for their lives. And so we have to, uh, with the wisdom that comes with age, encourage their perspective that actually what you're going through may be a part of God's bigger script for your life story. My kids roll their eyes occasionally when I when I begin to share a dear old dad's teaching moment. 
can ask our daughter, Emily, who's here with her husband, William and family today. God, our Father, is infinitely wise, knows the hearts of all people, and can see the end from the beginning. And so it's in that context that he will uh, guide his children to make the wise decisions about life. And even when bad things happen, because God honors the free choices of all people, and we're and, and because of that, many times we go through tests and trials in life. Jesus can redeem those and out of those messy situations still lead and guide us towards real life in a way that causes us to triumph. God our Father wisely guides and directs us. So Darth Vader was on the dark side, but Jesus is on the light side. And uh, without stretching the analogy, in his words and his works and his way of life, Jesus invites us to rethink, to rethink what we think, feel, and believe uh, uh, about God as our Father. And today, I, I hope that we can lean into a fuller and richer experience of God, our Father's unconditional love, his generous provision, and his wise guidance. Lord, would you cause the revelation of of your love for us as Father to grow today, and that everything that's buried and hidden and packed into that uh, that label of you as our Father would just begin to explode in our hearts and minds, and that we could really actually live what you intended us to live when you said that you are our Father. I pray for healing, Lord, for those that, that have experienced the lies of the enemy and the, and the brokenness of an earthly father, and that, that just even today, Lord, through the pre- preached word and the, the lifting of hearts and hands in worship, that your Holy Spirit would, would release healing to our church family and the barriers that have stood in the way of us experiencing your, your love and provision and your direction could just come like shattering down today. And all that you've intended for us would would burst forward. Lord, now as we give our gifts to you, we pray that you would take them for what they are, tokens that we love you. In your name, amen.